So lately I've been reading Russian novels From the latter 19th century Mainly Tolstoy and Dostoyevsky Sometimes I think I feel the same way As the characters they mention Who love in violent passion and dismay Who always seem to know what's best Who get what they want and then get depressed Who suffer, bleed, and fight and die In search of something true But every time I reach the end I realize that all my reading's been Is another failed attempt at getting over loving you On the last episode of Someone Else's Blues, Sam, Hannah, and Paul recounted some of the highlights from their bike trip across the country with Bill Cranshaw on the Navajo Reservation in Guthrie, Oklahoma, and in the Ozark Mountains. This episode picks up where the last one left off. If I were not me, and you are not you and we did not both know what we've both been through my name is will stefan welcome to someone else's blues a podcast about twins twinship and the best singer songwriter you've never heard someone else Part 6, Coming Down with Something Serious. In the previous episodes, I mentioned how a lot of my brother's music has been influenced by his study of the Bible. He has a master's in theological studies, after all. But it might be more accurate to say that his songs are influenced by his love and interest in literature. There's You Can't Get Any Poorer Than Dead, a song whose title he stole from a Flannery O'Connor short story and novel. The world is getting warmer and warmer Soon we'll be in perpetual summer With an ice cube salesman on every corner Selling ice cube trays for a hundred and a quarter And I'll take ten though I can't afford them Cause what's just a little more debt When you can't get any richer than to know you're alive And you can't get any poorer than dead While the rich folks get richer There's Tom Jode's Promise A folk rendition of the iconic speech Delivered by Steinbeck's protagonist At the end of The Grapes of Wrath who decides to leave his family and to run from the law, who are pursuing him for the murder of Jim Casey's killer. Hey ma, wake up, it's me, it's your boy Tom Jode. I love to, but I can't stay long, I've gotta hit the road. In the morning they'll be looking for me, high up and down low. Cops from every county, from Salinas to Frisco. But I only got a minute here, so I won't make this long I ain't always done the right thing, hell, sometimes I've been wrong But as long as I am gonna be an outlaw from now on Wherever there's a stone unturned hereby, I swear I will be there 
I will be there Wherever you can go to think some lonesome thought I will be there I will be there, so help me, God Then there's words, words, words which echoes Hamlet's answer to Polonius when he is asked, What do you read, my lord? The song seems more like it was inspired by a reading of Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States than anything by Shakespeare, since it is basically a laundry list of lies told by a handful of U.S. presidents. In 1992, the war on crime and drugs just grew. Mr. Clinton said he had a plan and that it would be unfurled. Built prisons left and right, filled them practically overnight. Now the U.S. has more prisoners than any nation in the world. And if I didn't know any better, I'd suppose that the lockdown was a bad dream that emerged, merged, merged. But it's getting late, how long you gonna wait? For you admit that the promise was just words, words, words. And then there's I Think I'm Coming Down with Something Serious, a perfect anthem for quarantine living in 2020. In a song which I can only guess was inspired by Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain. I'm sorry to admit that I have never read The Magic Mountain, but it is a book that I know means a great deal to my brother and to Paul. It was the book that Bill was reading when he died, a book about which he conversed at length with Paul and a book my brother spent quite some time studying in detail in the months after the bike trip. Um, no, Paul, Paul had started reading it and I think was still reading it. Uh, and Bill had started it like, uh, I think as soon as he got to California. So he was okay. still kind of in the beginning and Paul was like further along. So I remember there was a lot right, of, okay. a lot of like Bill and Paul talking about like what part of the book they were in. And, um, right, okay. Yeah, and there were a couple nights when, like, Bill read us some passages from it. Because it's, I mean, it's a book about, like, uh, like the experience of time in a lot of ways. Um, and, it's, and it's also, it's, I don't know, it's an oddly appropriate book to read um, around a, a thing, a project like that, just because, like, I was, just before we talked, I was reading um, through some parts of my, my journal from the trip, and mm-hmm. um, and I wrote one night uh, after Bill let me read a letter that he wrote to Liza, um, and I was, I was writing about what he was writing in his letter to Liza, and, uh-huh. and it was just so, um, I don't, I was so like moved by it it he was just talking he was reading and i was he and i were both reading uh the thomas mann novel the magic mountain yeah and it was like it was a really um fitting book for the experience because it's all about like a young guy who's just like out of school and he's like i think he was 20 three at the time mm-hmm. in the in in the novel and Hans Kastorp and he's like having all these sort of epiphanies when he goes to visit his cousin up on this mountain and he's like kind of escaping his life and uh gets like sucked into this 
this experience and you know it's about a guy who like goes up a mountain to visit his cousin at a sanatorium and only intends to stay for like a couple weeks and he contracts an illness immediately and then uh, winds up staying for seven years and it's sort of about right. how like his whole plan of his life is just thrown off by um, I don't know just by going up the mountain and then he's sort of in this like other world and it's I don't know, there's a lot about it that's sort of kind of like being on a bike trip. It's like you're outside of outside of the world and looking at everybody else like they're, I don't know, people who have these normal lives and you're, for a moment anyway, not living a normal life. came here by request to see my cousin who's been ill Intending to remain a week or Bill was Bill was writing about some like sort of uh, weaving together some of the like the ideas about time and about uh, like the like about time and about death and about like the present tense and and like um, what was happening to him on the trip like. In, internally as he moved through space every every day and yeah um and like that you were that he felt and I'm like speaking for him but but really like I guess speaking from what I wrote in my journal so mm-hmm. for, for whatever that's worth um <laughs> like uh that that you're almost, and I, and I think I was writing about this because I really connected with it. Like that you're almost absorbed by the in the present tense, um, which is yeah. like you're you're and you've you've experienced this, I'm sure, on your trips. Like you're constantly moving yeah. forward into like new newness. Like your right, your your relationship to time is 
like merges with your relationship to space um and that like one sort of um like marks the other um and and it's like I, i mean it's like it was sort of zen i guess like that that you almost like you're you like lose yourself to like you lose yourself in the process of of like your total immersion into your surroundings. Um, yeah. That's right. Yeah. And and like and then like it, it's weird in retrospect cuz like so much of the magic mountain is about death and and mm-hmm. the character's like relationship to death everyone around him is like preparing for death. Um and and so Bill was very interested in that and almost started to like make these connections between like his own sort of mortality and and like self abnegation um like wow. that there yeah. was this like there's this like pure state of of presence um that was right. both like full and absent um and it was i don't know i think it it was just it was just really cool to be in conversations about that. and Yeah, I mean, another thing, I mean, you mentioned something in your podcast about how it's like, I forget what part you said it, but you're talking about, like, privilege and how it's like a privileged thing to be able to do something like this. And that, that was something that I remember all of us reflecting on also. You know, like, when everywhere we went, we would run into people who would be like, uh, like, like, hey, where are you guys coming from? And it's like, oh, we started in California. And, like, eventually it was like, no, you didn't. Like, like really, where are you coming from? Um, yeah. And it became this, like, more incredible thing the further along we went. And even kind of in the beginning, you know, we, we were telling people, like, yeah, we're going to bike to New York City. Or, like, we're biking across the country. And we were like, wow, like, I wish I could, you know, do that or take a break from my life and do that. And yeah. we all kind of felt like, you know, if you wanted to, you, you could do that. Um, but it's also like, I don't know, now, eight, eight or nine years later, I don't really feel like I could do that right now at this moment in my life. So, right, there is, there is something about it that does feel kind of like the time and place has to be right. Yesterday I wrote a letter out on the lawn Dear uncle, it said Sorry I misspoke If you're reading these words now It means that I am gone And no, I don't mean Stepped out for a smoke Been a privileged child I've known the taste of wealth Please take my things and give them to the poor If you like to keep my books God bless you, help yourself Where I'm going I won't need them You read Magic Mountain 
like once you finish the trip. Yeah, yeah, several years later. Yeah, I sort of went through this thing after Bill died where I like read all these books that he read. Um, yeah, and because yeah. he was he was like he wrote his like senior project at Bard about like postmodern writers like Thomas mm-hmm. Pynchon and. Yeah, you had taken a class with Paul called Pynchon and Delilla, where they basically read all Thomas Pynchon and Don Delilla's books. Um, wow. Yeah, and he really liked them and wrote a lot about them. And I read his senior project uh, my senior year and thought it was great and was like, wow, I should probably read these books at some point, but also didn't really feel like it. And then, I don't know, after he died, I was just kind of like, well, maybe I'll just read this and see what it's all about. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I read, like, Gravity's Rainbow, and I read, you know, White Noise and uh, Underworld and a lot of the Willow and, uh, yeah, and Magic Mountain. Um, yeah, and, yeah, and it was weird, you know, reading that because at some point it was like a book where it's like, I'm going to read I'm going to start reading this and it's going to be like familiar to what I knew Bill was reading. And then there's going to be a point where it's like, Oh, Bill never got to read this part or never got to read the ending. He like doesn't know how the book ends. Right. Um, but, but we had his copy, uh, it was like in his stuff and, you know, we got to look at his annotations and I think Paul has it, has, still has his copy. Magic Mountain. Had a girl, I loved her madly. Towards me, her feeling was lukewarm. Later on, I learned she had me in the calm before the storm. I thought love would last forever. I could not have been more wrong. You can't dress for the weather In the storm beyond the call In some passages, like this one from May 6th, still somewhere in Oklahoma, you get a sense for why Sam may have felt enticed to read Mon's novel. I have no doubt that Bill would have made an excellent professor. With Bill, we talk of our regrets in our most shameful times, and of our favorite negative emotions. What is your favorite negative emotion, Bill prompts us. My what? What do you mean? I mean, can you even have a favorite negative emotion? Of course you can, Bill says. There is a long pause. I don't know. You seem to have an idea of one. What's yours? Alright, I'll go first. Mine's resentment. I love resentment because it's not as simple as it seems. You can't really resent anybody without secretly admiring them at the same time, you know? I like it because to my mind it's a mixture of hatred and admiration. A feeling of wanting to hate and kill somebody, but also wanting to be them at the same time, and to be friends with them. Like you are recognizing in some person you will not allow yourself to love something in them that you already do and cannot make yourself stop loving. It's so confusing, but that'd be mine. I don't know, I mean, that's a good one. 
I don't know if there are too many other negative emotions that work like that. That actually sounds about as positive as it is negative. Oh, come on. Sure there are. Shame works like that, too. Yeah, shame. Maybe shame would be mine. It's the easiest emotion to access. It's like the thing that when you think of what in your life has been shameful, the feeling comes back as strongly as it did when you first felt it. I don't know if I like feeling it necessarily, but there's something to be said for it, certainly. It's the feeling that memory has the easiest access to. Yeah, I sort of love hearing stories about shame. Yeah, you've got some good ones, Bill. What are they, Hannah says. I want to hear them. And he tells them. Of crying so badly for the toy he wanted as a child, which his parents finally gave him, and which he could not enjoy at all. Of the time his brother fell on a rope swing and was lying unconscious, was maybe even dying, and he ran home and somehow could not bring himself to interrupt his mother, who was talking just then on the telephone. The thing about this trip, though, says Bill, is, well, I guess I should just explain it before I say it. So, there's this character in the Magic Mountain, whose name is Madam... Actually, I'm not completely clear on how you pronounce it. Paul, do you call her Shu... Cho Chat, maybe? I don't know. Shu Cho? Is that it? Cho Chat? For some reason, I've been thinking the way to pronounce the name is Shuko. Anyway, in the Magic Mountain, Hans Castorp is totally enamored of this Madam Shuko. He has this sort of insane relationship with her, where every time he sees her, it becomes this huge thing where either one of their eyes are looking. I mean, it starts out sort of innocently, but then he starts talking with this other woman who's much older, who sits at his table for all the meals, and who sort of figures out before he does that he's totally infatuated with this girl. And so she starts going on and on and telling him all about her, and then sometimes not telling him about her, just to piss him off. And so very slowly, Hans Castorp sort of falls in love with this Madame Shuko, even though the narrator tells us that love at the sanatorium doesn't really exist, or that it's not really possible, or that it's not the same thing, anyway, that it is for the people who live down below. But it's love. I mean, that's what it is. Or it's one half of love, anyway. It's actually kind of insane, because... For a significant portion of this book, you've been learning all about how in love with this girl Hans is, but he's seriously never even spoken with her. All they do is make eyes at each other. Thomas Mann writes like 12 scenes where the only thing you have to pay attention to is when they're looking at one another, and how it makes Hans feel. There's actually this great scene... Yeah, wait, Bill, did you get to that part where Hans is waiting to get his x-ray taken, and him and Joe... Joe, uh... How do you say his cousin's name? Wait, yes, that scene's amazing. Yeah, it's so crazy. They, yeah, so they're, oh, go ahead. No, you say it. No, man, it's all you. Well, I'll just say, there's this amazing scene where Hans and his cousin both have to get their x-rays taken because they're in the sanatorium, you know. And so all that stuff's going on with Madame Shuko, I've just been saying, and they go into this waiting room to wait to get their x-rays, and there's been a delay in the appointments, so they're running a half an hour behind. So they're just sitting in this room that's no bigger than a closet, and suddenly, Madame Shuko comes in. And, God, it's so crazy. And Hans Kastorp doesn't even talk to her. Yeah, 
And it's so intense because not only do you know that Madame Shuko definitely knows that there's something going on between her and Hans Castorp, but Hans's cousin also knows it and doesn't want to get in the middle of it. But there he is, and they're all just stuck in this little room together. And you already understand at this point that Hans is in this position where he actually can't talk to this girl because he knows that if he ever talks to her, it would just ruin this perfect, untouched thing that they have going between them in their eyes all the time. And I forget what happens exactly, but somehow Joe uh, uh, Achim, is that how you say it? Joe Kim? Choke him? I don't know. Hans's cousin gets to talk with Madame Shuko, and you get to read this inner monologue of Hans's while he's sitting there watching his cousin talk to this girl he's totally in love with and how resentful he starts to feel of his cousin, and how stupid everything his cousin is saying sounds to him, and how much better it would be if only he were the one who was talking, except he isn't the one who's talking. He's the one who's just sitting there, like a child, embarrassed that he can't or won't say anything because he's too afraid to talk to this girl he doesn't actually know very much about. It's so good. It's so good. And is that... Oh, were you... What? Go ahead, sorry. Well, I was just gonna say, and then I'll be done. My entire life, I feel like, from the time I was in the first grade, I've always had a Madame Shuko. I mean, I could seriously give you the whole history of my life just by listing all the girls I've loved, who never knew it, and who I could simply never bear to tell. I mean, it's sort of crazy how well I can remember events from my childhood, and the order that things have happened to me in. But I think it's only because I can actually do that. Because I've got that catalog well memorized. I know all their names and what grade I was in when I loved them. Because, to be completely honest, I've never not been in love with someone in that way. Except now, on this trip. I mean it. This is the first time in my life I've not had a Madame Shuko. And that's crazy to me. I mean, I don't even know what that means that I'm not spending every moment of my day thinking about someone I want to be with. Or someone I wish I could say I love you to. But I don't. I, I mean, I'm not. And that's not a bad thing. It's just weird. I mean, it's amazing, actually. And I know that must have something to do with being out here on the road, and with what it means to feel like you are living in an entirely present tense. Because that's what it is. I'm completely present here because I'm not trying to love someone who doesn't or might not love me back. I just don't care about that here. And I sort of wonder if that's something that will come back as soon as we're not moving again. Or if maybe that's a more permanent change. Like maybe that's just who I am becoming now. And that it's going to just stay that way. Just fine. The way it is. Paul says he has had dreams on this trip where he cheats on Leora and feels horrible, and then he wakes up and realizes it has all been a dream. I feel that anguish too. And it will come to be that when I am startled from that sleep, for which I still shall seldom dream, as I seldom have before, that my anguish will begin anew, not in the dream, but in the world. Because not two weeks from today we shall have lost the peace that is only possible to know when you have not yet learned the way it will be lost. The peace that will go and go, irrevocably and forever. 
so that not even in the empty waiting void of unremembered dreams will it evermore come back. Sam had not yet read Thomas Mann's Magic Mountain when he took that trip, but I can remember him spending a long time reading it when he got back. I think I could tell he didn't really want to finish it because of what finishing it would mean. I myself have never read it, but the coincidences in this story are not lost on me. Perhaps one reason I am committed to remembering Bill right now, the reason it took me almost 10 years to realize I had a part of this story to tell, has less to do with the fact that our brothers share the same name and the same twinned collegiate pedigree, and more to do with the fact that Bill was planning to attend a graduate program in literature, and speculated in front of a classroom of kids as part of a motivational speech about becoming a professor. It is hard to suppress the thoughts of what Bill might be doing today, where he might be living, what he might be reading, researching, or teaching. Would he have pursued the postmodern novelists, as he had started to at Bard? Or would his hobby of entomology, a virtue instilled in him by his father, have gotten the best of him and made him change horses midstream? I remember taking Columbus's The Four Voyages with me on my trip, not out of admiration or respect for the author, or even for the pleasure of reading, but because I was studying early modern travel writing and was interested in doing a project about colonial encounters and the specters of cannibals on the early modern stage. I remember persuading Bob to buy a copy of Cyrano de Bergerac at a secondhand bookstore halfway through our trip so that he would have something to read other than a map. 1492, Chris Columbus and his crew Discovered folks living in some islands to the west Promised to be kind and when changed their minds Made most of them their slaves and put the rest of them to death If I didn't know any better I'd suppose That the terms of his agreement just weren't heard, heard, heard It's getting late, how long you gonna wait Before you admit that the promise was just words, words, words If Bill had been at Rochester in May of 2013, I have even wondered whether he would have put us up for the night when Bob and I made our way through on our trip, assuming I still would have been interested in undertaking such a journey. And this is something I think Sam has the habit of doing as well, especially in italics, trying to remember how Bill and Paul had discussed the trip before embarking upon it. And they must have spoken there also of the trip, too, though at first perhaps only in passing, as only a thing that might be, with Bill explaining it as a thing his father had done, and as a thing he had always meant to do, and had even thought of doing the summer before he came to Bard, but had not, and with Paul listening to it the same way perhaps that he listened to Bill talk about how he would raise his children, in the unimaginable event that he should ever have them, thinking to himself, you realize, of course, you will need to become a boyfriend to someone before you can become a father. But letting so much alone as a thought until Bill had finished explaining once more, as he had already said thousands of times, every time a child or even the memory of one passed before him, saying, 
Here's what I don't understand. How parents can let their kids do anything by themselves. Saying, Today I saw a kid waddling up at the nursery school. He walked like every step he took was too much, and then for some reason I can't explain he would just fall over, right on the sidewalk, and cry. God, it was the worst thing I've ever seen. The whole time I was looking at him, I could just tell it was going to happen, too. It was like he just figured out he had legs or something. I swear, I'm going to be a terrible parent. If I ever have kids, I'm never going to let them do anything. I'm going to carry them around until they're 17. I mean, I'm just going to have to watch them all the time so they don't do anything dangerous or stupid when they're alone and curious. Seriously. I mean, how do people sleep knowing that they have these little curious people in the next room where there might be all kinds of things they could cut themselves with or choke on or climb up and fall off of? Just think of how many things could go wrong with a baby. No, in fact, don't even trouble yourself. It's too much. It would be crazy to even try. I was born this morning and I'm told that it went well. Apparently it's normal to come out screaming like all hell. The doctor said congratulations, it's a little baby girl. Well I just went on screaming, he said, welcome to the world. Listening as to a thing that was so far off in time, it need not be entertained seriously, with ears that did not trample of the other's words, with questions and askings, but with the patience that waited for what was humorous in it, as though to hear him tell of a time that had already passed, that had happened long ago, now, in the place of a world where Paul himself had ever existed where Bill had already lived his whole life out into old age with the best experiences and results of all possible, where it was merely for Paul to imagine it to the extent that the other could speak it. I think, and I think I've talked to Sam about this, honestly, like, I get more nervous and uncomfortable driving than I do biking. Um, And that was true, like, right away like I hmm. I I think that I think like I don't know I yeah I just was scared of cars like in this way that um just made me uncomfortable driving for a while and I still yeah I noticed feel, that about feel Sam that. yeah um cause the car is like you know is the is the culprit and and it's just right. uncomfortable for me to like be behind the wheel and and I I don't you know I drive obviously but I don't I don't like it at all and um right and I just I I think maybe maybe like other people who've been in bad accidents or whatever I just continuously associate it with like death and like and i think i'm prone to like more so than than biking although i do have my sort of bad moments on my bike where i like something will happen and like a car will like drive by real fast or god sorry mm-hmm. i'm like wa- walking by like a rugby game it's like it's probably gonna like 
be on your podcast. There's lots of shout. There's lots of shouting. Yeah, I was um, wondering. It sounded like a soccer game or something, but yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> um, it'll be over soon. Uh, yeah, like I just have my moments of uh, where I my brain takes me down like a really um, almost like PTSD kind of path where like a yeah, car will go no, like, past me or like. I, you know, or a car will pull out in front of me and my mind just, like, creates really ugly, um, you know, images. And, and yeah, that, that like, still happens to me. Um, so, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I guess to answer the question about, um, to answer your question about bike trips, I, I'm open to it, um, but I would have complicated feelings about it, and I would probably be like very, like particular about knowing like what yeah. I'm getting myself into. Um, yeah. Just, I just don't. I don't know. And like that's something like when my dad was planning his trip that I did feel like, like it was important for me to like chime in about that and like try to. But I just know that from experience that if you're doing a cross-country bike trip, like, you just, it's just inevitable that you're going to be like, oh, shit, like, where'd the bike lane go? Like, yeah, you know, you're not going to, like, backtrack to, like, find a safer road. Like, yeah, I mean, it's just the way it is. Middle America does not have good bike lanes. Yeah, um, another thing I was talking with Paul about, have you, like, what has your relationship with biking been <laughs> since the trip? Like, have you kind of just, yeah. like, stopped doing it, or have you gone on any more, like, longer tours since? Yeah, well, I I had never done it before <laughs> the trip, uh-huh. before going on the trip, um, and so I don't know why. I I don't know. I kind of butted in on my trip. I, I've always felt really bad about that. <laughs> but I just obviously <laughs> wanted to experience it, and I love those guys, those guys. So. Yeah. But um, so I had never I had never toured before going on it, and um, and then afterwards, um, I haven't I haven't afterward either. But um, and there was a long time when I didn't even bike. But then yeah. it's also been um, it's been like pretty um, maybe I don't know if this is the right word maybe like pretty life affirming I guess to 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 take up the bike <laughs> again. Uh-huh. Um, and so like the last year I was living in LA, I ended up buying a bike and then biking everywhere <laughs> and it was cool. so awesome it just like it just felt like magic again where it's like the, that that level of interaction um yeah. with your surroundings and then um is is incredible and and then here um i've been biking around a lot but you know never never really more than maybe 30 miles max yeah. Um, yeah. Even camping was hard for me after that, um, especially 
in like the, the regions around California because I had never experienced them before the bike trip, and so, um, mm-hmm. and then LA is so foreign to like you know those those deserts and those right um, those environments, and so um, it was always really hard because it would remind me so much of the bike trip. And just, yeah. like, that feeling, like, you know, nothing can touch you or, like, a, there's... I mean, I guess you didn't get to... You didn't experience that feeling on your bike trip because... Yeah, I was anxious the whole the time. Consequences. Yeah. Yeah. God. <laughs> but it was, like... It was, like, the last... I mean... I yeah, guess, well, yeah, like, some innocence is broken. That's why I... I mean, I love yeah. that, that song that you sampled by Sam and I think, at the beginning of your podcast where... Um, he talks about being brave in once. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, yeah. not really being able to anymore. But Yeah, and, uh, I mean, one thing Paul told me, and, and this might actually be true for Sam as well, is that Paul also said that he, um, he really couldn't drive after, mm. after the trip for a long time. Like, cause, cause he just got so, uh, like he found it like so triggering to kind of be, right. be around like cars or be in a situation where he was responsible for. And I remember distinctly like Sam insisting that he did not want to be behind the wheel of a car for, I want to say like a year or two even after, after that trip. Um, mm. Like, yeah, I, I almost got this sense. Like, it, it was weird because, I, in a way, Sam, um, it was sort of like he was dealing with things by, like, insisting on being on a bike mm. almost all of the time. Like, it was, like, I remember he, he moved back to Bethlehem, and he, like, got involved in, like, the bike co-op in Bethlehem, and he, like, met all these people who, like, fixed bikes, and he got really good at fixing bikes. And he would bike everywhere, I mean, Mm. because he didn't want to drive. He, like, really, I think, thought that the car was kind of the culprit. Um, And now I think he's – I mean, I guess I don't really know where he is with that now, but I I do know that he does drive now. Um, And also – but also he got in a bike accident a couple years ago, like two years ago, biking Mm. in Philly. He, like, broke both of his collarbones. Um. So I don't know if that kind of – I think he's just, like, very cautious about both modes of transportation now. But I guess I'm wondering if something similar happened. Like, were, were did you have, like, yeah, a different relationship with driving or with yeah. cars? Um, yeah, well, so, 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 you know, right after the um, – I moved to Los Angeles, like, in July, I think. Um, so it was, like, two or three months after yeah. Bill's death. And so, and then where I was living there, um, it was kind of a necessity for me to have a car because I just didn't know anybody there. And so I needed yeah. to have, like, that level of, like, independence. But I always lived, like, near public transportation so I don't remember feeling as scared because so 
I, I I used to also ride motorcycles when I was in college, and um, one of <laughs> wow. like the one of like the the mantras there is that it's like it's everybody else's fault, <laughs> I guess. You know, it's like you can be as cautious and as careful, um, but just by virtue of like a bike versus like a car. It's like a uh-huh. car will win, and like and so you're you're kind of like dependent on the stupidity of others, and so I guess like um, I guess like I, well, I guess where Paul and Sam are coming from is not necessarily being like afraid of the car, but just like being afraid of the response, maybe the weight or the responsibility or like the yeah yeah potential of it yeah um but but so. Yeah, so I don't, I don't remember having like a too much of. Um, it was, I think it was the bike that was made me more fearful, because it was also just like, I think, I didn't get back on the horse too soon enough after, and so just like the sadness and like the the shock, I guess, of that physical experience. Um, yeah, would just trigger a lot of memories, I guess, and would just make me feel very, yeah, very sad. But um, so yeah, and then also in LA, I mean, it's like on a freeway, you don't see any cyclists anyway. So <laughs> right, right. Um, it just all felt so foreign from like what I had been experiencing before. From Thursday, May twelfth. It's mostly italics now. Man, Paul says, stopping. What? I hit a butterfly. What? Ah, man. And I remember that we turn back here to commune again, to gather ourselves this time about a glorious black butterfly, which is not dead, though seriously injured, somehow still for the most part intact, with the knowledge that it will not survive long now. Its wings flap delicate, softly hitting the concrete as in some kind of mute protest. There is nothing hard about it at all. It does not even make a noise. It looks like a leaf which the wind blew here and is trying to blow on, except that there is no wind now to blow it. It is dying. What kind of butterfly is that? I think it's a swallowtail of some kind, Paul says. He picks it up gently with his fingers grabbing it by the tips of its beautiful wings. It struggles. I don't know. Bill, you know what kind of butterfly this is? Let me see. Uh, I don't know. It's pretty cool looking. I think you're right that it's a swallowtail. And do not forget this. How he took it into his hand then, as he did every insect and beetle and butterfly which we ever saw or came upon on our trip morphing his fingers to the shape of it, and how whatever it was he took up would give in immediately, becoming docile, let itself be taken by that hand, those long rubbery fingers, that held it firmly, but would not, it seemed to know, crush the life from it. How he let it sit on his palm, or the ends of his digits, just so, for the benefit of himself, so that he could look at it, hold it down and look down on it, hold it up and look up at it, almost as though he were reluctant to say anything about it before he had actually touched it 
and made his own hand the whole background and world upon which to view it. His large hands, the fingers of which I saw him countless times clean in some way with his mouth and tongue whenever he ate anything that fell apart in them or did not require the use of silverware, and sometimes even the things that did, that knew the gentleness of taking up the lives of insects and holding them close before returning them to their broken mother earth unharmed. That gentleness of hand which personified the gentleness of his heart to me. Is it a monarch? Nope, it's definitely not a monarch. What are the characteristics of a monarch? I'm not entirely sure, but I think a monarch tends not to be all black. And I think you can tell by body shape, antenna length. I don't know though. Something to ask my dad. You think it would be all right if I ripped its wings off, Paul says? Ripped its wings off? Yeah, I mean, it's gonna die now, right? Don't get me wrong, I feel horrible about it, but I'd really like to have a swallowtail to press in my notebook. Jesus Christ, Paul, says Bill, laughing. <laughs> what the fuck's the matter with you? What? Should we just... I mean... Fuck. I don't know what to do. Haven't you guys ever killed anything just so you could keep it? I am reminded of the collected beetles of California, Arizona. Bill did. Bill's killed like 30 bugs on this trip so far. They weren't worth the trouble. Oh yeah, don't even remind me. Yeah, I did that. And I feel pretty awful about it. I still do. I just don't want it to be... <sighs> Fuck, I, I mean, look at it. It's just suffering. Suffering what? To be the pariah of its race now. Its wings to cease soon to flutter aimless and dejected through the rest of its life, which now would not be long, which now was never long. But how long is a butterfly's life, anyhow? A stupid question in many ways. The length of a lifetime, I suppose. Not a thing that should be measured anyway, at least not by the human mind. Nor the length of a world too big to know, nor day too long to live through nor wind too strong to fly against, nor sun too bright by which to read, nor night too cold to sleep. How did you ever survive here? Unless you never knew your beauty. Unless you never knew that you were separate from the universe, even while from within it. Unless you never knew how this could happen. That is how one gets on here, by not knowing for a great deal of time what not even experience has to teach you that it took you so much time to hatch and cocoon yourself and develop and mature and change to become what magnificence and instant may destroy. What should I do? Fuck. Come on, guys. Let's keep going. Fuck. We rode on. Not the fate of which I've been so afraid. Lord, have mercy.
could not repay Have mercy on me So I'd rather than die I can turn the favor Someone else's What stays with me are the lost feather, the dead butterfly, and the scorned prayer. Um, I think you, so. you know what happened, or? Uh, not really, because I was actually, so I was like the only eyewitness to uh-huh. what happened, and I didn't really even see that much, but, uh, but I got, um, like, not subpoenaed, but I was supposed to go and be, like, a witness at this trial because, um, yeah, basically this woman claimed that Bill had, like, left out in front of her car, and um, my feeling was that that was, that couldn't have been true because we were all, we were on this road that, like, the shoulder was not very big. You know, it was maybe, like, a foot of concrete. Um, right. But it was like a lot of roads that we had ridden on, and um, we were all kind of in a single file line, but we were really spread out. Yeah, and I, I kind of looked up. I didn't see the impact, but I looked up after I heard, you know, heard Bill get hit. Right. And sort of like saw the aftermath of that. But, um, yeah, but I, like, yeah, it's crazy when I think about it because I didn't even – you know, we like went right to Bill and we were with him uh until the ambulance got there. But I don't I don't recall even what color the car was. Like I didn't even look at the car. Um yeah. or the or the person driving it and I didn't even attempt to like figure that out at the time. Um so I had like no that was something that was just so far from my mind uh in the moment. Right. But, I mean, have yeah, you ever I, have you ever talked to Bill's parents about like the aftermath of that? Like, because I assume they did they have to like testify somehow? Yeah. Or? Well, what happened? They so after I went to divinity school, the following year, like a year and some change went by. I think it was the, the summer after. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. it was like a full year later. Bill's parents actually came to Nashville because uh, we were supposed to go to a trial, the three of us in Memphis. And I was supposed to be, uh, like the witness. And then, like, wait, why was it in Memphis? Why, why wasn't it in Arkansas? Or no, sorry, it was in Arkansas, but it was, oh, I think, I think we were, they were going to fly to Nashville and then we were going to drive to Memphis. And then it was like, you know, right across the border is Arkansas. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, our plan was to like stay in Memphis with one of Sue's relatives. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was like two weeks that like they had bought their tickets and then it was like two weeks before they were supposed to come. Uh, this woman who had been, you know, saying that Bill like left out in front of it. She like, uh, made some kind of deal where she was like, I don't, I don't want to go to trial. Like I'll just take the jail time. And I think she did have to go to like a couple of years in jail or something. 
and maybe her. Do you, do you know what she was actually charged with, though? Was it manslaughter or was it? Um, I think it was. I I actually don't. I really. Yeah. You know, um, but I'm sure that's like the something you could look up. I found the police report, which is disappointing for how sparse it is. Fatal number one nine nine, accident number one seven seven, deceased one, injured zero, date of crash five sixteen two thousand eleven, time of crash two thirty eight p.m., location highway sixteen, county white, deceased William Cranshaw, born two twenty eight nineteen eighty eight. City of Residence, Annandale-on-Hudson, male, pedestrian. Vehicle, Dodge, 2003. Direction, South, Highway 16. Initial narrative. Pedestrian was traveling Highway 16 South on a bicycle. Vehicle 1 traveling Highway 16 South struck the bicycle and pedestrian. Not injured. And here, the name, birthday, and address of the woman driving the car are given. She was wearing her seatbelt. Weather condition, clear. Road condition, dry. Body held at White County Medical Center, Searcy, Arkansas. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's something I've thought about, like, you know, I've thought about tracking her down and trying to, like, talk to her about what happened, but... I don't know. I guess so much time has gone by now, but um, I don't know. And I guess I really just do. At the end of the day, I do just feel like it was an accident. Like whatever happened, I'm sure she didn't like intentionally hit him. Um, right. But but at the same time, I mean, like there is such a thing as like criminal negligence, and like um. Like, I, I seem to remember Mom mentioning something to me about how she found out that it was, like, somebody who was, like, like on pills or something. Um, yeah, well, I, th- I mean, I, I recall Sue saying, telling me some, some of those details. Uh, but, yeah, but it's, like, yeah, it's hard to bring up or, like, ask about that stuff when, yeah, you know, you don't know if people want to talk about it. I don't know. Right. Um, but right. yeah, I, I feel, I feel like I heard the story that it was some lady who had been working like a night shift, uh, and may have been like a nurse or something. And was like oh, driving wow. home, driving home from like a double shift. And I don't know, was either texting or had maybe fallen asleep for a second. But, yeah. Huh. But I, yeah. I, I don't know any of the details of it. It was just like, and I guess my feeling has always been that, you know, even if I knew, it wouldn't change anything that happened, you know? Right. Right. So, yeah. On the next episode of Someone Else's Blues. But actually, so one other thing I wanted to ask you is, like, um, again, I still don't know what I want to do here, but are you comfortable with me kind of reading reading, like, the description of, like, what, what actually happened, like, when Bill got hit? Uh, what do you think? yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess. 
I mean, yeah, part, like, the reason I wrote that down is because, like, I wanted to have a place for it. Um, right. And, I don't know, I think writing that down made me feel like I found a place for it or something. Next time on Someone Else's Blues. Well, I guess I'd better go now, Ma, cause soon it will be dawn. I'd just like to say I'm sorry for all the screwing up I done. But just cause I ain't here no more, it doesn't mean I'm gone. I'll be with you on every step of every stair. Tomorrow when they come for me, you tell them I was here. Tell them that you saw me, but you didn't see me clear. Tell them I'm the echo that's been whispering in your ear. Tell them if they're looking for me anywhere, I will be there. Wherever I am wanted, pursued, or sought, I will be there. Wherever there's a road that ain't been tried or trod, I will be there. Any place you go where you think I'm not, I will be there. I will be there. I will be there, so help me. Yes, then I wouldn't be here trying to choose. Now between mine and someone else's blues. Someone Else's Blues is a podcast written, produced, and edited by Will Steffen. Music, of course, by Sam Steffen. By the way, if you like the music you have been hearing on this podcast, you can hear more at samsteffen.bandcamp.com. That's S-A-M-S-T-E-F-F-E-N dot B-A-N-D-C-A-M-P dot com. samsteffen.bandcamp.com. But you should have seen your face that day It looked not a thing like mine Why is it always common sense That says it's alright to just be yourself sometimes Lightning never strikes the same place twice, they say But even if it did, they might not believe that anyway If I were not me, and you were not you, that I would not want not to not be not you. The hardest part about loving you is that it has never been that hard.